Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. Nick Parkinson is my guest. Nick is the person behind Hopscotch and a number of different venues in Canberra. In this particular podcast, we talk about his career, um, him being a chef, how that whole entire thing started, and ultimately what drove him to a decision to open up a business in Canberra at a time, nine years ago, when those kind of businesses didn't quite yet exist in this scene. We also talk about Hopscotch in detail, what it is, how it came to be, and essentially how it still is a classic and authentic venue. If you're interested in the space of hospitality, the Canberra foodie, pubby, loungy kind of scene, or you're just interested in those who transition to running their own businesses and all that entails, then most certainly this is the podcast for you. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for being the sponsor of this podcast series, and I hope you enjoy this candid conversation with Nick Parkinson on Behind the Bio. Hi Nick, how are you going? I'm very well, thanks Ash. It's good to hear. Thank you for making it here. I know you called me like, I don't know, 15 minutes ago and said, I'm up a mountain, I need to go home, have a shower and then I'll come over. So thank you for not coming stinking to my stinking uh, podcast. You're most welcome. <laughs> I had to go and uh, yeah, get a bit of uh, the mental health in check by <laughs> yeah. walking up the mountain as I do quite often. Yeah, fair so, enough. So yeah, just take my little doggy up Mount Ainsley and yeah. Now, the thing is, too, you live in Nainsley, so I guess it's quite easy for you to go up the mountain, right? It is. Yeah, no, it's, yeah it's I still drive from my house to the base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I don't know why. <laughs> so, um, I think I bothered you about you being on this podcast a couple of months ago, and you didn't even answer. And then I saw you, was it the Tourism Awards, I think? Yeah, And I'm it like, was. Nick, and you just like looked at me weirdly and you went, look, I know, Ashley, I didn't answer because I don't want to be on no interview. And I'm like, it's a conversation. Yes. Anyway, I think you had a few drinks because you said yes. And here we are. So I did. You. I did. You got me with a bit of Dutch courage under my belt. So <laughs> exactly. here we are. Here we are. And we've got a bit of a beer. With yes, us too, that's so right. right. Um, the reason I want to talk to you is for a number of reasons. I think um, I know your background a little bit, which is worth going through because I think those who might be following your shoes a little bit career-wise, might learn a fair bit from that. But also, and as we were just talking a moment ago, you know, you love Canberra, you don't really want to leave it. And we kind of went down that tangent speaking about something else. But I did kind of want to talk about almost the impact that Hopscotch had, because if I'm right, it actually was the first place in Braddon that kicked off kind of the foodie or at least the pubby and lounge scene there because from memory I was pretty much the first place that I remember that was that gave that offering before others started popping up yeah um, and I think that's a very important thing because it's now been how long in Hopscotch nine years actually this year yeah <laughs> I know time flies so. like an idiot. yeah nine of course it's the, it's the other six um, yeah so you think about that you know it's a long time and you think of Braddon you know nine years ago it would have been a completely different proposition very and true I think in some way you and Kate must have had quite Quite a bit of a vision for this. But before we get into this, um, you were born and bred in Canberra, right? Sure was, yeah. And tell me this, did you, uh, when you were going through school and so forth, I know chefing is your background. That's right. When did that decision come into play and did you go straight into the trades or did you end up doing anything like CIT or anything else to kind of get into it? How, how did that happen? I did do CIT. I actually, I started at Snebbins College uh, in Finished there in 2003, mm-hmm. no idea what I wanted to do sort of in college, whether I wanted to trade or to continue year 11 and 12. Uh, I started at Narrabunda College and that just sort of opened up my world to a whole new sort of 
options and choices. Yeah. Uh, they did a lot, I did a lot of woodwork and a lot of hands-on sort of um, classes, which I'd never really done before um, at uh, St Edmunds. Yeah. So I found myself using my hands a lot more. Um, my mum was in the hospitality industry um, sort of, Oh, up until I was probably in year 10. So I grew up around um, restaurants, uh, loved the scene, loved mm. everything that was sort of around me. Um, and it was sort of thrown at me whether I either go to uni um, and I was really interested in building a construction <clears throat> at yeah, the time. Right. Uh, but sort of my extracurricular activities at school, which was more socialising than, you know, putting my <laughs> head in the books and being quite academic led me to, uh, yeah, getting a trade. Mm. Um, and by chance, I fell into working in a bar and just waiting tables at what's no longer there, the Tristy Marnica, oh, right. um, which was a great A lot restaurant. of people remember that place. Yeah. yeah. And Dave Hocking, the owner at the time, was um, a very, very good operator. Um, he was a good chef. Uh, he was very good with controlling sort of um, the business side of things and, and wages and, you know, just making a, a restaurant work on, on figures. And I found that quite interesting on top of the fact that it was quite a good restaurant and it, um, you know, was very busy. But I admired, you know, the whole running of a restaurant yeah. um, of, of how he sort of went about it. So starting on the floor as oh, I think I was yeah straight out of year 10, um, working casually there, uh, waiting tables, and it was the most daunting thing I've ever done. Like, <laughs> my hands were shaking. I was so nervous. I'd never sort of been, you know, dealing with, with customers before in any sort of breath um, mm. besides a checkout um, operator at Superbarn at the time. Yeah. So this was a whole new world for me, which was um, exhilarating. It was fun. It was, you know, I loved the late nights. I loved just the camaraderie yeah. and the small team and how it worked. Um, and then I kept looking in the kitchen, you know, glancing over, and they looked like they were having much more fun than I was having <laughs> waiting tables and dealing with, you know, customers and Karens and so forth. So sort of went there with my head down and went, oh, excuse me, chef, do you mind if I, you know, start an apprenticeship? And they had a position at the time and sort of the rest became history. Right. And how long did the apprenticeship take? Uh, I took, actually took me a lot shorter time than the the original four years. Mm -hmm. um, TAFE at the time was, was one thing, which sort of 80% of all chefs would go to do at the Reed campus. Uh, I went there and the same sort of thing. It was once a week and a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, were sort of there for the right reasons, a lot of people there for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find it very, very challenging. Um, and it was, I felt a waste of a day. So sure. they had on the job training, which was, you know, it was all up to you to do the book work. And then they would bring a TAFE teacher from a registered training organization in and they would sort of come in and mark you off on uh, you know, butchery, um, dealing with poultry, uh, filling and cleaning fish, and these were all different modules. Um, and because I had a very uh, good mentor at the time, sort of in the second half of my apprenticeship, Derek Brown, who sort of shaped me and mentored me into the chef I sort of became, um, just 
yeah, put all his time and effort into making yeah, nice. me be the best chef that I could be. So I think I finished it in about two and a half years. Nice. Um, which, yeah, I was very, very wrapped with. And I felt that I, I gained, you know, um, everything I would have achieved at CIT over four years. And did you then work at Trish for a bit longer as a chef? Sorry, that, move- that was later on. That was part okay. of that past. But the first part was Trish for two years, then a couple of short stints. And I finished a parlor wine room under Derek Brown. And yeah. that's when I sort of I started at CIT, did two years there, and then when I met him, started working at Parlor. That's when I sort of went to on the job, and he fast tracked me within a year to, mm. or yeah, maybe six months to get finished. So, and I presume that at that point too, you, I mean, you're probably very happy doing what you were doing. And I know from other friends that are chefs that the journey of learning never stops, right? So it's quite Definitely. easy to be a chef for life because if you can stand the heat, pardon the pun. Mm-hmm. And the hours and whatever else, this idea of actually maintaining a profession in that is actually something that a lot of chefs love. Like it, it, it is. Boring, it is right? a very love or hate relationship. Yeah. Um, in many senses, it's draining on the body after yeah. 10 years of sort of 60 hours. You know, forget the 38, yeah, the 38 hour working weeks isn't really a thing yeah. in, uh, in hospitality, especially in kitchens. Um, so look, I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it until I sort of hit maybe the 10-year, 12-year mark and mm-hmm. it was starting to burn me out a little bit. And then when you started to think, what else can I do with knowing what I know yeah. and not getting too far away from my passion? So <laughs> did you sit down with a piece of paper and write out versions where you're already open to different ideas? How did th- those next steps come to be? Uh, in relation to opening up a venue? Or, yeah, yeah. because, I mean, okay, you started kind of going, maybe I can't do this forever, Yeah, right? well, I think the yeah. biggest thing was going to London and I – as soon as I got qualified at 21, I moved to London to chase my dream to work in high-end restaurants. As and a chef. As a chef, yeah. that's right. And I made it. I did it. Um, it was grueling hours. It was minimum wage. Um, and obviously, living in London, it's just a massive rat race. But what was so exciting <clears> about it? I mean, apart from saying I worked in London, like was it the idea that you'd come back with a CV that no one could deny? Definitely. Oh, okay. Right. At the time, Gordon Ramsay was, you know, the the pinnacle of cooking and yeah. all of the world was focused on London at the time um, and, and, and Paris. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's, yep. that's, that's that was that era. Genre. Exactly yeah. right. And the chefs that I worked for at the Capital Hotel were sort of all in that that group, but they were all predominantly French, which made it very difficult for me to sort of progress because I was looked at as this sort of uh, – Australian chef that didn't go to Le Cordon Bleu or, you know, some yeah. famous cooking school as all the surrounding chefs around me <clears throat> sort of were. Uh, so, well, Jamie uh, Oliver might have taken you on. He, he was coming from a different perspective. That's exactly right. It was. was the beginning of him then, right? Yeah, I think. I think it was even a little bit prior to that. Okay. But uh, I think that was the sort of – once I got there and started cooking and I realised, geez, I, there was a, a sort of fundamental time that I had a – the sous chef there had all these accolades. He'd worked um, at some of the best restaurants in, in London and in Paris, um, like the La Gavroche uh, under the Rue Brothers who had, you know, shaped um, French cookery. And he sort of – I saw him rock up in his little – Piaggio scooter and we had a chat he was going home for the weekend and I said oh um, Chef Richard what are you doing this weekend and he said oh I'm gonna go sit in my back shed and make ice cream um, which I do most Sundays and I went 
if that's the most exciting sort of, you know, point in your week after you've done 90 hours in one of the most stressful environments, mm. I don't know if that is really what I want to sit down and do <laughs> on a Sunday. And I admired him so much. He was such an amazing chef, but he looked burnt out and... I well, clearly that, that was a moment of zen for him. Yeah, I get, exactly right. Simple, yeah, it was, it was nothing in the back that he's in the back shed doing that. But, but the point is that, he, that he's getting away from it for something very simple. Yes. Yeah, yeah I get you. And I just when you know, his whole life is devoted to this, this, uh, this career, which I admire so much. But I think after doing 90-hour weeks, you know, falling asleep on the, on the tube, mm. Multiple times and ending up at Heathrow because I was on that line. <laughs> and then once you're out there, you're stuck there and like, you know, 60 quid cab ride. I couldn't afford that yeah. to get back. You know, that was a quarter of my rent for the week. Um, so it was just like, oh, I don't know if I can sort of continuously do this for the rest of my life. It's, it's interesting to hear, you know, this idea of wanting to be surrounded by the best, some of the ones that you've just mentioned, mm. which seems very much off that time. Because if I think of chefs, and mind you, I'm in Canberra, so maybe that's a little bit different. Mm. They do talk about being influenced by the greats, but not necessarily wanting to work with them. In other words, the most common dream that I hear of people who are chefs and wanting to make it their own is all about being part of something small, mm-hmm. distinctive and unique, and usually community-based. Yep. Um, and I mean, I'm really generalizing here from, from the chefs that I know, rather than ones that are chasing the hats and yes. ultimately the fame and everything else, which Definitely. I'm sure there are. Which is interesting because I think there might have been a bit of a change in They're, the way that, exactly that right. whole system went. So in other words, and if you had your life again now, yep. what might have happened to you is that passion still would have been there, but rather than perhaps going to London to chase that kind of work, you might have looked around more closely, whether it's camera or otherwise, and gone, there is people who are doing some pretty exciting stuff. I want to help them do that. And you're kind of attaching yourself to a particular food movement or introduction of cuisine, but you know what I mean? And make your name on the fame of a particular small restaurant, you know, that all of a sudden a lot of people go to. Yeah. Um, In other words, I was kind of thinking that maybe, and maybe I'm just not hanging around the right people, but it seems to me that, Foods become more about broad experiences rather than today we're going to go for a fancy restaurant and everybody goes to the same fancy restaurant. Definitely. We're about trying different things and finding the new one. Who's a little bit different? Oh, yep. and that's a bit better. And it's, I think that's great. And, and that's actually a bit of a change. But it also means that I think if someone's finding themselves in your shoes, I guess they might be chasing slightly different things these days. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, at the time, uh, fine dining was the absolute pinnacle of, mm. of any chef. Um, as Talking about, you know, the smaller uh, restaurants that are doing their own thing and doing quality food of a very, very high level without the whole, you know, silver service and, uh, you know, attentive service that takes, you know, two maitre d's to set your table and, yeah. you know, four waiters are dropping plates for each customer sitting at your table. Yeah. Uh, and I think a huge part of the change in that is fine dining is very, very hard to make a dollar these days. I mean, wages have increased substantially. The pro- cost of food has increased substantially. 
um, you know, transportation, everything, yet the cost of a meal still remains very similar to what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, therefore, the margins are so much tighter in, in high-end restaurants um, and restaurants in general. Mm. Um, I commend anyone that is doing um, really, really well within restaurants because it's so much um, and it's a testament to their skills and what they're doing. Um, interesting. Which yeah, for yeah. me, you know, changing from uh, from food restaurants into pubs, you know, we open up a, a beer and that's the extent of our preparation mm-hmm. and and start um, and staffing. It's one staff to open up. We've got five chefs in the morning, you know, preparing all this food for the day, and I'm talking. Lunch service, dinner service, mm-hmm. and when you're in that high end, we get to the end of service, all that that wasn't sold, bang, in the yeah, bin. bin. Yeah. Um, and that's at that level, you have to be that fresh and that consistent um, with mm-hmm. your product. Um, and I think, you know, looking at the likes of Gordon Ramsay at his uh, restaurant portfolio, it is no longer – you know, 90% high-end restaurants, yeah, it's yeah. A probably 10% high-end restaurants, yeah. and they're all based still in London, um, maybe a couple of in Las Vegas, but even then they're not of the same level as London by any means. Um, I and guess they want to open up a bigger market. And that's to do exactly so, you have right. to be less exclusive. Yeah. And also not everyone feels comfortable unless you've got experience in that. Definitely. Uh, being in, you know, silver service where you've got four waiters behind you and they're listening to everything you're saying or pretending not to. But you know everything is handed to you. There's a there's a a theatre to it that exactly. I think a lot of us, including us, truly be probably quite uncomfortable because I feel like an idiot, you yeah, know, and I look like a brute. Um, and and I think there's a specific cohort, but that's very very specific. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I think the yeah the food movement has changed in so many ways. Um, you know, bricks and mortar, for instance, as well, just cost yeah. so much for rent these days. And if you're in a, a high street in, whether it be in the UK or, you know, anywhere in the city in Sydney, um, and they're suffering hugely since the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can roll a marble down Pitt Street and sometimes it won't even touch a car or a, um, <laughs> a, a pedestrian yeah. post-COVID. Like, it's really struggling a lot of mm-hmm. – and then you, you can slowly see the snowball effect that it's happened now, especially in Melbourne. Um, some of the most amazing restaurants just could not get their way out of it. Yeah. Um, and it's so sad. Um, you know, I'm watching a 100-year event um, that no one sort of – saw coming mm. has just destroyed a, a huge industry Mind um, you, in many ways. I, being an optimist, though, you could kind of argue that despite the change being quite hard, a lot of different things are born out of that. So even like what we're talking about, the way that the experience of food is changing, in a way, things will become born out of that. It, it offers space and opportunity for other things to Definitely. come in. So, I mean, there's... There is an upside to this, depending yeah. on looking at it. Hospitality is very adaptable too. Yeah. They all, you know, you roll with the changes yeah. and, you know, the hospitality industry does it very well. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that um, won't come out so well. But, you know, saying that, and I guess I'll qualify it in this, that if I think of the Canberra foodie scene, mm-hmm. Despite the damage that COVID has done and everything else, we did very well for ourselves. Very There's well. a lot of new places that have opened up that have survived very well. Mm-hmm. Others have have it as well, but that could be for a number of reasons, not just because of COVID, but yep. rather that the product wasn't just quite there. Yeah. But so I think overall that industry is doing very well and most certainly Canberrans support it. In fact, food is, is still a huge thing. Tell me this. So you're thinking, I don't want to be making ice cream on Sundays as my relaxation. 
Was that the moment that you think I'm going to go back home and see if I can open up a place? Very soon after. Uh, I sort of came to a point where I actually left that uh, the Capitol Hotel in Knightsbridge because it was – I had this chef, this uh, – I moved uh, into pastry. So I was on the line cooking in the main restaurant and uh, pastry something I had never done before and there was a position – That's sweets, right? Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so, so, we, so people yeah, pa- <laughs> pastry, uh, very pastry. broad though. We did high tea there with yep. very English tradition. Um, so I was in charge of uh, making sure – so I was the sole chef for the high tea and then I had to help uh, Chef Anno prep all the cakes for all the hotel um, uh, people staying in the hotel. Um, and it was a you know very, very um, sort of traditional uh, London hotel. So it had all the sweets handmade every day. Um, we had a lot of uh, hotel guests that, Live there. Um, they were just, you know, right. Yeah, they uh, husband passed away, and you know, they come from just that old English money that's been passed they can, down. They can and afford it. And they can afford it. Who'd leave with your cakes? In that, that that's hand. right. Yeah. Um, so I'd make, you know, pretty mundane things as well. Make their fruit bowl up in the morning, sure. and you know, they were very um, specific on how they wanted their their grapes and the ripeness of the banana. So that was my first job. Following into, yeah, learning a whole different uh, sort of part of my industry that I'd never seen before. And it was going great, absolutely great. But he was just, oh, the ups and downs with this guy, I just couldn't right. deal with it. I, I can deal with a lot from chefs, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. But this guy was just, yeah, I could never do anything right. And mm. I just got to a point where I was like, look, I cannot do this anymore. So so when you sent the banana up that was too ripe, that was the end of it? <laughs> no, I'll tell you actually what it was. It okay. was uh, the sanitation Every morning he had a very specific way of his knives had to be lined up, the chopping board, ah. and it all had to be – he was this sanitation freak, which, of course, in pastry, everything does have to be clean um, just as much as in a main kitchen. Oh, we're getting but, obsessive. Yeah, he was very yeah. obsessive. And he mm. came in one morning and, mind you, I'd been in Leicester Square that night at Zoo Bar, probably had a few too many <laughs> vodkas and wasn't feeling great on the 6 a.m. train in the morning. Uh, and I polished all these knives, laid them out perfectly, and he came in and he must have had a bad night too because he came in and just threw it all in the sink and had this hissy fit, went off, absolutely off his head. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to go outside and have a minute. And I picked up my stuff and just left. I, I, just, yeah. I went down and saw the uh, exec chef and said, look, I'm not even handwriting you a resignation here. I said, this is not the right way of doing things, but I will not work with him anymore. Sure. I've, this is the third time I've come to you about our relationship. It's it's not going, going to get any better. Um, you can tell Chef Arno that I'm, I respectfully resign yeah. as of immediately. And look, it's not the best way to part ways, but I had a very short time in London left. It was six months and I was like, look, even giving two weeks notice here is, is too short a time. Yeah, you yeah. Know, if that's the way you treat me, then look, you can deal with the fact that you're a, a patissier down for a couple of days till you find someone. Yeah. In those days, you know, there's people knocking on your back door in That'd suits, ready to rock up. It's, yeah. it's not like the chef shortage we have in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Um, and from there, I, I actually worked in a coffee cart uh, in the elements outside in a little three-wheeled Piaggio uh, van that uh, my boss, who was – 
Uh, she was English but lived in New Zealand um, mm-hmm. for a number of years roasting coffee. Uh, and she opened up this little roasting business in London. I was her first ever employee. Um, and she loved the fact I was Australian. And I'd already done coffee quite a lot prior to that. Mm. Uh, so I did my last six months pouring coffees in, yeah, minus five degree <laughs> morning sometimes <laughs> uh, out the front of the BBC in uh, White City, actually. And that yeah, was great. That just gets you ready for Canberra winter. Yeah, and and you know what? I had the best time because I could experience the last six months of my working visa uh, by working Monday to Friday and then I had nights off and on the weekends I could do all the things that sort of anyone that uh, goes to London to sort of do is travel, you know, the fact that you're a stone throw away from Europe and so forth. Uh, Yeah, I had a really great six months with no intention of coming back and – sort of opening anything but mm. it was more I just wanted to get back and just ground myself again yep. and sort of yeah work out my next steps um, how did that working out go it worked out very well actually um I came back and my sister and her partner at the time oh, sorry and and her husband yep. uh had a, an idea to open up a pub, which it was nothing I was ever interested in mm-hmm. because I was still in that focus of I, I love fine dining food. Maybe I needed that short break uh, in the coffee van, but I was ready to sort of get back but also not fall in that, you know, 90-hour-a-week trap. I think I lost a bit of passion in London realising if this is the top level of cooking – I don't think 90 hours a week is, yeah. you know, I don't think I want to dedicate my life to something uh, as, you know, time-consuming as, as that. Yeah. yeah. But did the – um? so did Kate kind of – I mean, obviously, it's your sister, so you would have kept in touch and everything else, but was she waiting with that idea – until you kind of got back? Or was I don't that a bit of think just a so. Weird fluke I think that- they had they had this idea for a while, but it started in a much smaller scale. Okay. Uh, I think we were looking at maybe 100 square feet places, you okay. know, but 60-person occupancy. Uh, and then Kate, who's very, very sort of uh, on the ball with – Anything that's sort of popping up here, whether it be rental properties or, you know, she's always looking at whatever's around. Yeah. Uh, found this spot on Lonsdale Street and we looked at it and went, oh, well, this is a lot bigger than we anticipated. Yeah. And when we opening a restaurant and this is turning into a, <laughs> yeah, like a bar slash pub, an nightclub, airport. an airport, <laughs> uh, it was just like this massive, overwhelming barnyard. And we went, ooh. Because, sorry, at that point, t- tell me if I'm right, because I, I, I distinctly remember you calling me up and us meeting when you were, there's just the very beginning of something. It was the bare bones. It was essentially, right. it was essentially just a, it looked like a hangar. It was. And I remember you kind of pointing at things at bar there and this thing here, and I'm trying to imagine it, which was like, quite enjoyable. But at that point, I'm pretty sure, I was trying to think what was around it, but on the left there wasn't anything. Oh, there's a bicycle store. Or, or So we were at the Adrenaline Plus. That's it. It was Adrenaline Plus next to that, which was originally Video 2000, if you mm. remember that too. <laughs> yes. um, and then what was next to that? Yes, was, I'm trying to remember. Oh, 
<laughs> I really can't tell you. It's the night Point being, yes. there was no hospitality around it. I guess no, that's there, what you, there was Apart from Civic Park across the road. What was the up the road, Ash? Uh, the pizza place that did extremely well right across. Oh, um, Debacle. Debacle. Now, but that, was, that was at the other end. That's right. So yeah. that, that, um, was sort of, I remember going there and going, wow, this place is heaving. Um, and that was the sort of first thing to hit the street. But that was more of a pizza. Correct. Pizza and pub. No, yeah. the first ones to actually have, um, I'm probably getting shot by my friends here, but as far as I know, it was the first one to actually have beers that were not just your Carlton's, but rather kind of more special yeah. ones. So yeah, we can't, we can't forget the fact that we have a Civic Pub that's been an institution no, across the road. Say, and then that was the only other thing I can remember. Yes. You're right, sorry. But... Correct, but but as far as yeah, hospitality goes, that that's all there really was. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was a right time for. Look, I was after I got back from London two years prior to that. It was very nightclub orientated, as you know, playing sure. at Academy, and I everyone sort of went out to clubs um, more so than they go to pubs these days, or yeah. something like a you know assembly or, or hopscotch where. I find you can still play the same club music. Mm. Um, you can still have the same great sound. No, they there. didn't exist apart from Trinity, but That's that right. also became a nightclub very quickly. Yes, they did. Um, there um, really wasn't that offering anywhere else. I yeah. think organically it turned into this place that you could go in the afternoon, have after work drinks. Um, mm. Being such an open barn, it really uh, gave so many options for people. You know, mm. we, you could sit down, have a meal, um, away from all the riffraff out the front. It's sort of, yeah. um, the music's a little bit louder. I think maybe the difference too that we probably should point out that there were most certainly lounges and bars around, you know, from hip hop onwards. Yeah. But that's, that's a different proposition. You were not going to get a, f- food in there and you're not going to go there with 20 rowdy people and kind of grab a table. That's right. Um, some of them you needed to book in. Yeah. They tend to be quite small. Mm-hmm. So they were fantastic for smaller groups of people to catch up with yeah. a great cocktail. And yes, most certainly DJs, including myself, would play at those. But if you think of then there was a gap and yes, you'd have pubs, i.e. Civic Pub, and sometimes they have live music, most yep. certainly never a DJ. Debaco was a restaurant with exactly great pizza and um, and essentially great beer, but they had no live music from my memory mm-hmm. for, for that. No, so no. most certainly if you think of our interpretation of the hops and the assembly kind of places, th- that, that genre of venues did not exist, which kind of sat in between a night spot and a pub and a social place. And you most certainly can have cocktails if you want, but you can have 20 people sitting together. You could just go there with a friend. That that that, that thing came much later and actually, yes. as far as I know, pretty much began with you guys. Mm. Yeah, and I think factoring in that we never alienated any genre of people was mm. – and that was always what we'd planned. That's what always in our mind what a pub is. Um, it's it's never – you know, it's open to everyone. It's, it's a public space that anyone can come into. Sure. As long as you have a shirt on your back and shoes on your feet, we don't <laughs> care what, you know, who you roll in with. As long yeah. as you're not, you know, grossly intoxicated, then yeah. please come in. And I think that's been a huge part of our um, sort of following is the fact that we – are just open to everyone um and with that um we do we you know when we do a venue we are we're in the entertainment industry just as much as the hospitality industry you know people want to come there to be entertained um whether it be entertaining their friends or you know the fact that we have live music uh when we initially open we were all about 
you know, doing something every night, whether it be um, our gender bender bingo, which we um, was a huge hit back then, trivia. Um, we had the vibrator races, <laughs> uh, you know, and then live music, DJs. Um, I think it's... Lots of games at the front. Yeah, the something. Jenga and the yeah. Connect Four. It was... As long as people come to a place that they feel relaxed, um, happy, and, and social, and social, and you know, as long as you drink and your product is good. Then so, to tell me this though, because I think what was interesting, and from the moment that I met you, you know, I, I met you in Cameron, Kate was there as well. You know, I was talking to two business people talking about a business. Like yep. it most certainly had that kind of feeling. We're talking about the way the audience, sorry, guests will flow through where the audience, if there's a la- act would sit, uh, how they kind of go to the bar and all that looks. So if I think of that and I think of your specialization and, and love for food and chefing, yeah, I would kind of almost presume that that's quite a small part of it. And even though the food is very important, so yep. don't get me wrong, the rest of the business is a lot of consideration, right? So you must have completely like changed your focus and gone, right, now we're talking about all the important things that are about making a successful business and chefing or creating the food menu or even the drinks menu for that matter is actually a smaller part of Definitely, it. Definitely, spot on. So was that was that great? Was that exciting? Was that a complete change of gears? Because, you know, I mean, you think of – the reason that so many businesses fail is because people don't get prepared, and rightfully so, because it's quite difficult for all the things that are actually meant to do with business. And Definitely. often they'll come from a sense of passion. Like I've always wanted to have a cake exactly shop. Right. They do a cake shop. That is, forget about running the business and ultimately that tanks because passion isn't enough, right? It's not so, even so close. So how did you guys do this? Uh, well, you did it. Look, how did you? Uh, not so much my sister and, and me, but my father. He okay. sat us down. He's a very intelligent man, very good businessman. Um, and I remember sitting at the family table uh, back when they lived in Yarralumla and we sat down. Uh, we had a meeting with our builder at the time and sort of loosely threw around figures of of what this is, you know, the final cost is going to be. And we sort of went... Well, from here, you've got to then go backwards. So how many kegs of beer to break even do we need to sell a week? And Brian, um, my sister's husband, uh, was working for Carlton United Brewery at the time. So he knew all that side, the cost of things, the cost of, of alcohol. I knew the cost of food. But it was more about you know rent, um, overheads, wages, um, which my dad's very, very good at. Um, and he's never worked in hospitality his life, but he just understands the business side of things. Mm. And we crunched numbers and looked at it, and on paper it looked good. Um, and it was... It was never about us and what we want. It was more about what the general public, and when I say general public, what does the, at the time, 400,000 people in Canberra want? Yeah. Um, and that's, you can never let your ego get in the way um, or, you know, of something that you really want to do in Canberra because there is such a small population and such a oversaturation of hospitality venues um, that you can miss the mark by just the smallest (laughs) infraction and everything else can be perfect. But, you know, the the margin's already very tight in hospitality. And if you get them wrong on one thing or another, you know, it can really sway the other way, um, Mm. uh, which won't tend to be in your favour. 
Well, the downside is that you are not watching anybody else and saying they've done it well, we can tweak and do it. So there's nothing you can learn off. I mean, well, certainly you can learn off debacle and even sitting pub and all that, but you are stepping into a different space. Definitely. The upside of that is that if you get it right, you've got a point of difference. Yes. Whilst, I guess, from there onwards, it's a slightly different game. You're essentially trying to outdo propositions and all the rest of it, which is good for hospitality because that's how it evolves. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you know, I remember you even saying to me that, you really don't mind and quite like the fact that there are other places opening up in Braddon because ultimately what it means is it creates a culture of experiences in a precinct. Definitely. And yes, it does mean that some of your uh, visitors might go and go and head out to another place, but it also works both ways and you're creating an excuse for people to come to this area. And, And, you know, that's where it is. And I remember you saying that and, you know, I kind of thought, yeah, that's a brave thing to say, you know, because you're essentially saying as long as we deliver a really good product and people know what it is, yep. we, we can stay true to that. But we like the fact there's other places opening mm. up around us and look at us now, you know, yeah. and now there's a bajillion things in. And I think that's really cemented that Braddon and Lonsdale Street is now and continually be, you know, a very strong hub for years to come mm. for the hospitality scene. I mean, as you know, it's it's just jumps and changes every yeah. five years. Um, you know, you've had uh, the interchange, Northbourne Avenue, mm-hmm. um, even over New Acton. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kingston got redeveloped. Oh, King, well, that yeah. was the original one, Kingston, yeah. Marnica. I mean, that was when I was at school, uh, 18 to 21, um, and we just had that Lot 34 sort of really <laughs> on the weekend, and we were just talking about Kingston and how, how much – you know how quickly that changed over the years. Like Monica was heaving. You wouldn't even find people in the Civic in, you know, Correct. the 2000, 2005. Yeah. I mean, when Academy opened, yes. Yeah. But that, that sort of in itself did huge things, the whole uh, nightclub scene in the city. Do you remember, if you think back of that moment when you, you guys opened Hopscotch, were you – I'm scared is not the right word. It, it was – I mean, if – there must be some worry around. Yes, I know you did the numbers. You had, you know, your dad to assist and all the rest of it. But I always wonder. It must take some guts. That's the word I'm oh. trying to find to do this. Because, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of adverse to kind of doing things that I'm not sure of. But unfortunately, business decisions you eventually have to go. We're putting money in and all Definitely. the rest of it. it. Were you kind of like I was shaky? so scared. Yeah, I was <laughs> like it was the first time I'd had a loan against my um yeah a loan against my name and it yeah. was daunting. Yeah, and it's it not like you came cute. back from London made. That's I came back thing. like broke. I, was <laughs> I did not have a single cent of my name yeah. coming back from London. I think, London. I think really I was in the negative. Point. I think I owed Barclays Bank like <laughs> maybe a hundred quid or something. Never and going back no, there again. I don't even know if I can go back in then uh absolutely didn't have a a single cent to my name um uh very very daunting um but if you're not scared if you don't have any fear if you don't have any doubts then you know you should be worried um because that makes you work and get up in the morning um to really, yeah, strive to yeah. make sure this works because if it didn't work, I would be, yeah, in a world of debt. From the moment of fear, what about the opposite? How far into uh, the the timeline, so to speak, did you kind of breathe that sigh of relief and go, you know what, I think this is working. I think we're going to be okay. What was it? A week in, six months, a year. When when did you find the calm to kind of go, we've made the right choice, this is the right thing? It was very quickly, to be honest, which is such a blessing. Um, 
it was probably the three-month mark. I remember Dad pulling me aside and sort of I was in the kitchen head chefing doing yeah. – and I was the head chef there for the first four years. Um, and so I, my sister runs the books. My dad mm-hmm. sort of uh, oversees everything um, and I sort of am the operations manager. And being in the kitchens at the time – and Brian was on the floor yep. run, running the staff uh, – sorry, running the front of house. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of just working, 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 flat out, sort of not really paying too much attention on the – sort of money coming in but I knew we were full every night and then sort of dad was crunching all the numbers doing the books and everything and just went you know this is we're onto something here um and from there you know it got busier busier and then it just got to a point where it was I think we just found that we would definitely you know, everything sort of aligned um, mm-hmm. and we created a place that catered, first of all, to lunchtime crowd, um, afternoon drinks, and then obviously with the DJs um, at night, having that barnyard yeah. sort of area that we could move tables and yeah. create a dance floor. But which, again, not a nightclub. So the big no, difference was there was no flashing lights. It never got no, dark. Not at all. It was about... Oh, would, the lights would go down oh, at about sorry, 10 but, o'clock. But but not, not, no, not, not, not nightclub dark. Yeah. No, not at all. There's no strobes and no, which we've we have discussed you and I. Over and I've kind of told you don't do it. <laughs> do not do it. They actually put some strobes up the other week. I wasn't oh. there, and they're like, "Yeah, it was great." And I'm like, "Oh, guys, yeah. let's not go too hard with that." Oh, it's just, I mean, again, I think where I'm coming from, and maybe I'm, I'm showing my age and whatever, but I think the point is here that you're not leaning into too much of an experience outside of what you originally stood out to do. That's right. Which is about not being a nightclub. Exactly. Sure, being a night spot, that's a different proposition. Yes. But, you know, because that is a point of difference. And again, not so much the other way that you just become a pub and never do these fun stuff either. Yeah. And sorry, I don't mean just become a pub, but you know what I mean, like yeah. the traditional sense of a pub. So when, you, when we talked about lighting, I said, look, it's all cool to adjust lighting, but as soon as you go into flashing lights and stuff, yeah. you're getting very close into nightclubs. That's scene. right. And then the problem with nightclubs, oh, it's not a problem, I guess, they define a particular time, mostly to a younger audience, who spend money in a particular way, never follow food, and automatically that takes you away from that too. While you're yes. trying to cater for the Ashleys of the world that yep. just might want to feed and a quick beer and a catch up with someone. Yep. And it's a very fine line between, yeah, not being a nightclub and sort of catering to that mm. later crowd, uh, which there back then was we were shutting at two o'clock. Um, that was yeah. our license, and we had no interest in going any later than yep. that. Um, these days we go till 4 a.m. But you don't, you're not changing. I mean, if if somebody goes there at 11, there's no difference between what you're offering at 11 now than what you did five years not ago. At not at all. I think what's happened is that because of the demographics and everything else, there is a cohort of people who are like, you know what, we want to kick the night on, but we don't want to go to a club or yes. a lounge isn't just for us anymore, or perhaps it's shut. We want somewhere we can still get a bit of a beer, yeah. have a bit of conversation, but if we want to have a boogie, we can. Yes. Um, and they aim for for that. So I think you're you're picking up essentially a, a slightly changing market. Yes, it isn't most certainly younger when you get mm. to those kind of hours, but it's um it's not that you've changed your offering. You've just no. extended that out to a demographic that just wants that. Yeah. In fact, at that time, 
And I think adapting to the change in demographic over the yeah. years, is, uh, especially with music and, I mean, the amount of times you and I have, have chatted uh, between ourselves in changing DJs and mm. changing um, playlists, uh, the times that we start that never the stops. memory. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. And it changes that quickly. Yeah. Um, I think the latest, biggest change we sort of did after post-COVID, as you know, is get some younger DJs in. Um, and I found that transition after COVID uh, I mean, the nightclubs, unfortunately, and I feel for the guys, uh, were maybe three months later than, than pubs opening up. Correct. So in that s- opening of the second lockdown, we just saw this huge influx of the younger generation. Mm. Um, and that sort of coincided within two weeks of you and I chatting and saying, I think we need to put, uh, you know, some feelers out for yeah. some uh just younger generational DJs. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've got some cracking uh, DJs mm. at the moment who cater to that younger generation. So, um, to that, there is a question that I wanted to ask you about this, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but um, clearly there's been a movement within the business to allow for a slightly di- different demographic. You know, you're changing as Canberra's changing. That's actually what I'm going to say. Yep. And also, you know, you are filtering through generations here. You know, we've got to remember that as well. The other aspect of it that I always thought was of interest is a lot of businesses will open, they'll run relatively successfully, and at some point, and I would hazard the guess it's usually around the six-year mark, mm-hmm. they'll go, hmm, let's refurb, let's redo, sometimes even rebrand, right? Mm-hmm. Because what happens is audiences at first love a place as a honeymoon, there's a bit of a lull, then you get uh, a core audience, and then eventually even they get bored or they get distracted by something else. Yes. What's interesting about Hobbs um, is I know you even spoke to me about that and said, oh, I'm kind of thinking of maybe kind of redoing things. But we didn't for one reason or another. And I guess I wanted to ask you for that reason. But what's interesting is that I would actually argue <laughs> that weirdly not doing anything ended up being the plus because there's an expectation around the originality and authentic nature of hopscotch and the way it looks and feels that's no different apart from some tweaks here and there Mm -hmm. um really to the way it was when you started not you know the dj's in the same spot the bar looks the same the backing walls the same you've still got those tables so i think there is something to the fact that you stuck to your guns and said well i'm not going to just change it for a trend reason there is something about the authentic nature of who we are that we believe people will actually return to and they have definitely so I think this is an important point because I think a lot of businesses get caught in this. Was it something that kind of went, there's something about me changing this that doesn't feel right? Or did it kind of happen somewhat of a fluke and you just went, wait a minute, I'm actually realizing that people are digging this, so why would I mess with Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a, a number of reasons why we haven't. Leases. Also, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, It makes me very nervous changing things. When Assembly opened um, two doors up, like they have a beautiful venue. It's absolutely gorgeous. gorgeous. We're an industrial-style pub. Um, Mm. I think that doesn't generally need to have to change too much. Um, It it is an open barn. The bar itself was built very, very well, the kitchen the same. Other than that, the aesthetics of it, I mean, we've – We've done licks of paint over the years. We always sand the tables back. Um, when we originally put the furniture in and uh, and built it, everything was built 
quite well. And when I say quite well, within the budget that we had, we've yeah. had to, as we got money, fix things that we sort but, you of you know, I guess you kind of went, this has to live yeah, at least for 12 ex- years. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Without but, falling apart. Yeah. Exactly. And in, you know, the foot traffic that comes through there, things don't last as long as others. But yeah, I just, I've never really gone, hey, I want to change this or I want to do mm. this. Furniture, a few things, but even the furniture, you know, we we did a lot of research into uh, the sort of psychology behind um, the the seating in, sure. in pubs. Um, <clears throat> that being sort of, you know, in our eyes, you, you've got to have and- highs, lows, mediums, and it's where you position them. So everyone sort of gets a view uh, of the, the next person. And, and let's be honest, people want to go to a pub to socialise. Sure. And also be seen, and not seen in a you know in a way that's egotistical to the person, but um, you know people like to go out and converse with the next person. It just makes it easy to make eye contact with someone. Definitely, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get um, if almost you have like a, almost like a bit like a beer hall, you know that whole idea, which is all based all, out of German communal. Things. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right, and and it encourages people to yeah. converse, um, and that's again us being. Uh, you know, part of our model is et- entertainment venue, um, just as much as a pub. You want people to, you want a place that creates conversation um, with the next person. And I find that has been a huge part of our success is the fact that people go inside. It's a little bit louder, but they'll go outside and it's a bit quieter. You know, you're outside, you see a friend, they're lined up. You can just walk around quite quite easily. And I mm. think um, that's something that I've never really been interested in changing. We sometimes chase points of difference and change and whatever else because we believe that's what people want. Yep. But also there is something about being authentic and longstanding. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it goes back to what we said before, that the idea that Hops was the first of its kind of offering specifically in terms of Braddon and so on, the, the fact that it's still what it is kind of leans into that. Yep. And if you were to change it, then, well, it's kind of getting away from that a little bit. And despite the, the fact that you're the original ones, you would kind of almost have to say it here. You're still exemplifying that through the way that you look. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a really great thing that, that you didn't do it <laughs> in yeah. the end, you know, as, as well as not putting the lasers in. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So even, even though, you know, you've mentioned that there might be some changes within two years or whatever else, depending on how things work out, I'm wondering, how do you think about it? So let's just for argument's sake that the lease is not an issue, mm-hmm. right? Would you like to see that place be in Canberra for 20, 30 years? Or do you kind of get itchy and go, I want to do something new? I, I just wonder, where, where is your kind of sense of place and adventure, so to speak? I do. I do. Look, Hopscotch is is the heart of everything we've we've done and mm. it's showcased everything that, we originally were about um, and, and are about, not originally, we are about. Um, so I would love to see that, you know, be passed on to my children if, if it can be. Um, it's a venue that, you know, I'd love to see have the same sort of uh, notoriety and love as, for instance, Mooseheads does. You know, sure. um, I don't even know how long they're, they've got to be over 20, 20 plus years easily. Yeah. Um, and I'd love it to be that place. Okay. Um, but also, it's just the change in. Uh, the change in, uh, in in what people want and it's what's hot today. Is it going to be hot in 30 years? Uh, I'd like to think so with with pubs um, 
and especially the the pub that we created, the new age pub we like to sort of call it, as a, as opposed to your um, sort of older style English pubs or mm. your themed pubs such as uh, you know uh, the Irish pub. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, I would. I I find we've got to a point with hopscotch now that it's it's offers to everyone. Yeah. It works. Um, we've got. You know, great staff. Uh, we've got great foundations that mm. I think have got a lot more years and legs in them. Yeah, mind you, it would be fun to see whether, you know, in, say, for example, 10 years' time, you would have actually changed the fit out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh whether, don't, don't we, give it. No, no. Whether we don't. Yes. You know what I mean? Because you're like, no after, way, I'm keeping it original. <laughs> after their national, I think it's going to have to be. Do you I mean, know how thin it, the tables will be after yeah, you've oh, sanded them so look, many times? I, I see it. We do it probably three times a year. And <laughs> every time I can see it getting that little bit thinner, it's probably got only about another 20 sands left before we're sitting on plywood. <laughs> but, um, yeah, by then I'd like to think we've, uh, yeah, upped our table and chair game. But, um, <laughs> but we'll see. It's yeah, yeah, look. Yeah. See what the people want. It's all about the people. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I like the fact that, you know, you're, you're thinking about the, the importance that is. And once again, you said before, if something's not broken, one fix it. Yep. And apart from the tables, which yes. you will have to, um, the rest of it can, can maintain. So, so I love that. But the other thing I was just going to ask you is, obviously, you came from a passion of food. You're now what I would call a business owner in the true sense. Yeah. That you know everything about numbers and stock and people and the experience and nitrate, the, the whole entire thing. And again, I would probably hazard the guess that the chefing part of it's pretty small these days. For you. Very small. Is, is that okay with you? Do, do you sometimes look at the kitchen and shed a tea or do you like, not at all. Oh, it's behind me and it's, this has been a great adventure? Look, I still read cookbooks. I still sure. um, love just, you know, following new food movements. Um, what I don't love, I have to be in the kitchen full time or I can't be in there. I sort oh, of have to have, I just need to have control out. over it all or I can't sort of go in there and start dictating, I need this done, I need this done. Because really, the time that I have to sort of spend with the chefs and to execute my vision and what, and what I want is very hard when I have to be in there. So I've got um, a very good executive chef that sort of I feed my ideas to. Um, and if she doesn't sort of understand where I'm coming from, then I'll jump in and I'll go and buy all the ingredients and mm -hmm. play around and we'll do this and we'll do that. Um, but, you know, she's got a very good um, background in, in cooking as well. So yeah. she gets my ideas and she's very good at executing. And it doesn't sound like – so I completely get that. You're either in it or you're not. Yes. And what you're into is essentially running that business plus some other ones. Yeah. So I, I get that. That's where your mind's – and if you were to project – I mean, this is probably very hard. You came back from London, you know, probably not knowing exactly what's going to be next. And, and this beautiful thing happened around owning that business – do you have any regret of vision? Like, do you know that if there is something in the next 10, 20 years that you think I'd like to try a little bit differently or, or are you quite content with the way things are and you'll just watch for opportunities as they come? Yeah, look, we've, we've definitely, uh, got a rather large project coming up towards the end of okay. the year. Um, 
I think I've, I've discussed it with you previously, uh, a rooftop bar on 50 Bunda Street. Mm, um, so that is a project that we are going ahead with and nice. um, that was sort of commenced just before the first COVID. So it was sort of a blessing um, in disguise that we didn't really get all the trades in there and start doing substantial work for it to sit, you know, somewhat um, stagnant and... Mm-hmm. Uh, unused for two years. That is something that we are definitely doing. Um, but after that, I, yeah, I think I'd be pretty content with having, having that and hopscotch and, um, you know, the two pubs yeah, at the bottom of 50 Bunda. Um, I admire, you know, Justin Hemmers and the Laundies and everyone, but, but I do not thing. how they run 70 pubs. But doesn't and- it go back to what you were saying originally, though, that I guess, you know, you don't want to be a martyr for a cause, so to speak. So you don't want to become 90% of your life. No. And then only relaxing but making ice cream on Sundays. It sounds to me that you are very content with this idea of being successful in things, but also maintaining a sense of balance and being able to enjoy things. And you Definitely. even said, you know, six months of working on that coffee card, the greatest thing about that was that you had this purpose, but ultimately you could actually do the things you were supposed to be doing, now, mm-hmm. which is visiting and, and getting experiences. Definitely. And it kind of sounds to me that, you know, you're kind of aiming for this idea that, of course, you want to increase business and, and do things that, that mean a lot to other people. But ultimately, you need to have the balance of time for you, which is, A, walking up Mount Ainsley or whatever, and yep. playing with a doggy and, and doing stuff around your house and mm-hmm. or maybe looking at cookbooks. This life balance thing seems to be quite... Yeah quite an obvious thing for you that you don't want to lose sight And not only that, Ash, I mean, having not every business can be like hopscotch and we've had, you know, um, other ventures in the past that haven't, you know, kicked off like hopscotch has. (laughs) Um, That is always at the back of your mind when you open something. Um, That makes life very hard. when Very stressful. Uh, There's so many other variables such as staff this day and age. It's so hard to get staff. Say you've got four pubs just operating so smoothly, perfectly. You're one manager away from leaving for it just to throw spanners in the works. And it's not like there's managers just knocking at your back door um, or say my head chef left um, or an exec chef, for Mm. instance, all of which can happen, you know, overnight. Of course. Uh, it's not the old days where there's just an abundance of chefs lining up. And me being the chef, uh, that's where I have to, mm. you know, play my part in, in the family business and, and step in, um, which happens, you know, touch wood. It hasn't happened for a long time that I've had to spend, you know, weeks on end in the kitchen filling positions while I'll still have to, you know, do my day-to-day running of, of the other businesses as well. I'm very happy where we are right now. Um, I could do one more, but mm. after that, um, I, I do really like that that home sort of work balance. That's, that, you know where the balance is. Yeah. You're staying true to it. Yeah. If it was a Monday to Friday gig, then, yeah, 5, 10, 15 cafes or whatever it is, you know, clothing stores, mm. they close at 5 o'clock, you go home. Yes, you sit at home and, and still do administrations, but it's the factor that – they're all running late hours and most of our pubs do operate seven days. So, you know, there is always the variables that you have to go in at the drop of a hat. You have to do this, which makes, I mean, I, I don't have kids at the moment, mm. but I'm sure when you, when you've got kids to factor in as well, More time. uh, it's, yeah. you know, which is, is a huge job in itself. Um, that do I want to sort of, 
continue. Yeah, at what cost? At, at what cost? Exactly yeah. right. I get that. And I think that's really good advice because I, I hear this from a lot of business owners at, at different levels. So whether it's PR, what have you, that talk about this, you know, the struggle between the amount of commitment they have for the, and the passion and mm. the amount they're investing into their business being successful, but then also trying to catch themselves for this honest moment to say, why am I doing this when I have to pay attention to other bits in life which can't just keep on falling off all the time? That's right. And yes, of course, it can swing in and out. And I'm sure when you guys were starting the business, as we discussed, you know, you, you probably really gave it all your own because you had to. But now that you're in a position where that is somewhat running relatively well, despite challenges and everything yeah. else, you're still kind of paying attention to the fact that ultimately this can't derail your life you know, in any way. Exactly so I think it's right. really good advice. And it's taken a very long time for us to get to that position mm. with Hopscotch that it's, I mean, it does help that we have two fantastic um, GMs and uh, a GM in 2IC yep. uh, who has just changed Hopscotch in such a way that, you know, they're, they're very good at the book side of things and they're very good at management. But, yeah, look, as you said, we put so much love and effort in ourselves um, in the first four years of Hopscotch, which I think is really um, the absolute most important thing when you open up a business. It's sort of working working in there and, and being there. And uh, I was very lucky as well, had some of the most amazing friends from hospitality that I'd met along along the way working in Canberra and they, you know, we had a, a solid team of about eight on the mm. floor and I had oh, three three really um, good chefs in the kitchen working side by side me, with me, um, which made it, it very easy as well. Well, look, thank you. I think, you know, what was interesting about that is, is I think it gave a lot of people, well, I'm hoping it did, an insight into your world and how you kind of did this. So in other words, you know, the person behind Hopscotch or one of the people behind Hopscotch, I should say. But uh, also a bit of an indication of your thinking about the venue and how it's kind of taken place. Yeah. Um, and also, of course, of the trades and, and everything else that happens behind it. Because I think, you know, it's interesting if if customers, you know, come into the venue, they experience it clearly from the point of view, you know, they think, oh, this place has been doing well. I like the beer and I like the burger and whatever else. But it's sometimes interesting getting the insight into all the other workings of it and how difficult and complex actually businesses really are. Yeah. Um, and especially since, like I said, Hopscotch kind of really defined the beginning of something quite different in Braddon. And therefore, in the, in the kind of culture of Canberra to have that kind of offering. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's fantastic. People are supporting it, doing well. So, obviously, it, it's yeah, meant something. And, and, and thank you. I, I, you know, I've got to thank the Canberra public for that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's without, you know, all these amazing patients that come through every every week, it's, um, yeah, we'd be... I don't know what I'd be doing. I'd probably be in London at a coffee cart. That or maybe you would go to your other passion, which is doing stuff with your hands in some kind of building. Yeah. Like could I could imagine you doing that for some reason. Yeah, it was know. it was something I really really wanted to do, and still find very fascinating. Um, and it's yeah, wow. something I, I really love looking at. And uh, you know, I've got a good a, a very good friend of mine who's a um, a very good builder in commercial, but also was a carpenter. And you know, we chat all the time, and I just you know find it very fascinating. Mm. Yeah, you know, the building industry and just you well, know. hey, it's never too late. You can start off with a treehouse <laughs> when you do oh, finally get children. And I did um, a little bit of renovating on my house, and I think that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my mind on that. So. The door doesn't quite shut. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just drill it shut. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll just slide that. It's fine. Sticky tape it to the thing. It's fine. Yeah, sticky tape fixes all. Um, thank you. Well, anyway, look, um, once again, thanks for the chat. I appreciate it. Um, I hope it's too dark now for you to go and do any other exercise. You're just going to go home. Do you cook at home for yourself? I, do you know what? I think you asked me that a number of years ago. <laughs> yeah. and I said I would not cook anything at home. This day and age, you know, getting a little bit older, I can't eat pub food every day. No. You know. Uh, so are you going home to cook today? I, I've my partner's at home and she's cooking a delicious meal so so you get somebody else to yes do it. Oh. that's right but I do we go to the markets and we go on the weekend and yeah it's yeah, yeah. at least you well I don't know what your fridge looks like but you opened mine and you said yours is very is, impressive is all this salad there normally and I'm <laughs> yes, like yes mine doesn't quite look like that but it's uh, yeah, it's definitely not party pies in the freezer <laughs> yes. and uh, chicken nuggets I've stepped it up quite somewhat since our last conversation yeah well you've got you've got more friends than I do just because I keep on stacking salad in there and you know what they say about salad and friends yes that's exactly that's right <laughs> you don't have any friends no <laughs> I don't um, beautiful look once again thank you so much and I'm sure I'll see you at Hopscotch at some point I really appreciate having you on your time So there you have it. That was my conversation with Nick Parkinson from Hopscotch on Behind the Bio. I hope you enjoyed that insight into his world, how he progressed through his career, and ultimately the insight into that institution that is Hopscotch in Braddon. If there's other people that you'd like me to reach out to, then please let me know. A lot of these people, including Nick in fact, are suggestions from the listeners. So let's go. You can reach out to me on Behind on. You can reach out to me at Instagram at Behind the Bio Podcast, or if you prefer traditional email, then Ashley underscore Farod at Outlook.com. You'll be able to reach me there. Again, I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for making this episode, and in fact, all of them, possible. And I hope you can catch me for the next episode of Behind the Bio in a fortnight. <laughs>